KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Art Power, welcoming the renowned Jack Quartet to San Diego for an evening of music titled Modern Medieval, with works by Caroline Shaw, Morton Feldman, and more. Monday, May 6th at The Loft at UC San Diego, artpower.ucsd.edu. San Diego businesses calculate how long they can hold out. I'm thinking seven weeks. That's my projection. That's what I did this weekend. I got there and I crunched the numbers. I'm Maureen Kavanaugh with Mark Sauer. This is KPBS Midday Edition. A new day dawns for DACA recipients as a court order restores the program. It means everything to have a work permit and be able to provide for your family. Plummeting grades are a red flag for San Diego's distance learning programs and a retrospective of San Diego's changing landscape from longtime San Diego journalist Roger Sholey. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by Bill Howe Plumbing, Heating, and Air Restoration and Flood Services. Family-owned and operated for three generations, Bill Howe has been serving the plumbing, heating, and air, and water damage needs of the San Diego area since 1980 with their fleet of trained professionals. Bill Howe has the ability to service all major and minor plumbing and HVAC emergency needs 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Bill Howe is committed to providing excellent service to their customers with transparent quotes and attention to detail on every job. Whether you're in need of an HVAC installation, plumbing, or water damage restoration in San Diego, they offer the convenience of scheduling an appointment over the phone, online, or through live chat on their website. Call 1-800-BILL-HOWE or visit billhowe.com. Because we know how. Newly diagnosed COVID cases in San Diego continue at their highest level since the pandemic began. Nearly 2,000 cases were reported on Monday with 50 new hospitalizations. It's these soaring rates of infection that state officials are hoping the new stay-at-home order will help bring down. But the business shutdowns will have consequences of their own as business owners and their employees struggle to stay afloat for at least the next three weeks. Joining me is Mario Gastelum, owner of Cristina Herrera Hair Salon in Otay Mesa. His business was shut down in the spring. Now it's closed again. And he's experienced both sides of the pandemic. Some of his family members have come down with the virus. So, Mario, thank you so much for speaking with us. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Were you getting the hair salon back up on its feet before this new lockdown was announced? Oh, yeah. It was back up on its feet and thriving, really. If I say so myself, my wife is a, uh, an excellent hairdresser, and uh, she's even a, uh, she's a cosmetology instructor for over 23 years now. And uh, we were doing really good. I mean, we've been in business. Uh, we, we opened up this salon. Um, in, uh, because we've had a salon before, but anyways, we've opened up this salon since, uh, September 24th of 2019. And we started, uh, slow, like any business, but, uh, we were hitting our stride in March and, and we got shut down and we survived that barely. <laughs> I did have to sell a car to, to get going again, but, uh, we were hitting our stride again and hello. Here we go again. 
how would you describe this year? I mean, what has this year of back and forth opening and closing been like for you? Jimmy Fallon described it last night. It's hard to believe one year that feels like it's been 30. You know, it's how I think that's how I describe it. It's the longest year ever. <laughs> Just up and down emotionally, uh, financially now, you know, it's hitting me. It's hitting you everywhere. You don't know where to look. It comes, it's coming from every side. Now, lots of businesses got uh, payroll protection funds because they had employees. Now, I understand the hairdressers who rent chairs at your salon are not employees. So was there any funding either from the city of San Diego or the county that you were eligible for? I applied, and since I didn't have any employees, I was eligible for $1,000. It takes $4,000 for me to run the salon. <laughs> I mean, I figured that out without much expenses, without running too much, you know, without having to uh, have the lights on for a long time, I guess, so to speak. Um, so $1,000 was just I mean, ridiculous, really. You haven't just experienced the pandemic through business hardship. Your family has suffered from the virus. Can you tell us about that? I have a 69-year-old uh, sister. She got it through a uh, neighbor of hers, all, uh, a neighbor of hers uh, that came back from Venezuela. She, she told me she came back and she was just at you know, the front door and we were just talking and it was cold outside. So I felt sorry for her. I let her in anyway. So she got, she got infected. And um, I, was, I, I was really worried for her because, you know, 69 years old, she, uh, she had... Uh, She's had lung issues in the past, and uh, her husband has diabetes, hypertension, and I was really scared. Luckily, she went to the hospital for a couple of days, and they were able to, to get her uh, her um, oxygen saturation up, and she bounced back. I was really surprised uh, and and blessed and 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 thankful that uh, she was. Her husband, surprisingly, with diabetes. Uh, got a cold and, and really didn't have that many symptoms. So I, I was surprised. Yet my wife, her um, 38-year-old uh, niece who lives in, in Mexico, she got it really bad. She was in the hospital for two and a half months. She was uh, intubated and uh, she has the scars to prove it. I, I, I was really scared. We were really scared for her. Um, she ended up surviving. She's still not 100%, though. And, wow. uh, and but she pulled through. Luckily, we haven't had any deaths. So, but it's been, yeah, it's pretty close. You know, Mario, how long do you think you can take another closure? <sighs> I'm, I'm, I, I'm thinking seven weeks. That's my projection. That's what I did this weekend. I got there and I crunched the numbers and I looked into my savings. I looked into my 401k. Uh, I'm a retired AT&T uh, telecommunications major. I worked 22 years for AT&T. And I was able to save up some money. I, I have my 401k. I haven't, I'm not old enough to get into my pension yet. It's nine and a half. But anyways, um, I'm seven weeks to answer your question is my calculation. Seven weeks. Uh, have you thought about what you'd do then if it lasts that long? <laughs> I don't know. See what AT and T's doing. I don't know. I, 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 you know, look for another job. Um, my wife, I know she can be an instructor at a, at a cosmetology school. They've always asked for her back. Um, so we might have to look for something. You know, another another type of uh, job. Well, that, I, I appreciate that. I appreciate speaking with you. I'm glad you took out the time to do this. I've been speaking with Mario Gastelum, 
owner of Christina Herrera Hair Salon in Otay Mesa. Mario, thank you so much. Good luck, and thanks for speaking with us. No, thank you for having me. Thank you all. Take care. Positive COVID tests and hospitalizations are both at record highs throughout California. Doctors and nurses are bracing for the worst at a moment when they themselves are particularly vulnerable. KQED science reporter Leslie McClurg reports. Only one bed remained when Deontay Taylor left the emergency room at the end of a recent shift. He's a respiratory therapist at a hospital in Oakland. When I left, we had one trauma room that was open to run a trauma and every other room was full. By the end of this week, he expects the surge to capsize his hospital. I think it's going to be chaotic. Only severe patients will be admitted and probably taken care of just because we can only keep the worst. Taylor says the problem isn't enough beds or even equipment like ventilators. We just don't have the staff to, to take on new patients. Taylor says personnel is down across the hospital. Some are home taking care of kids because schools are closed. Others are sick themselves. One staff member recently died of COVID. Because hospitals across the country are running short on staff, it's making it harder for California to recruit from that same pool of people. We're tired. Dinora Chinchia is a pulmonologist specializing in critical care at a hospital in Orange County. You know, there's only so many words you can use to describe the extreme fatigue. Watching the COVID numbers soar in recent weeks fills her with dread and nausea. She says she can't eat. Because this is real. You know, I've had patients who've told me that they don't believe that this exists until they've ended up in the hospital. Why have people lost faith in physicians? It's brutal taking care of so many patients who don't make it. Dr. Paramel Barucha is a pulmonologist at Mercy San Juan Medical Center in Sacramento. He says months of pandemic care leaves many providers traumatized. You know, like it's, it's like post-traumatic stress disorder that it will all go through. It is a communal sense of grief. He says his ICU is filled with lifeless, sedated bodies kept alive by machines. The floor is strewn with masks and gowns. Nurses race between patients. He likens it to a war zone. War zone, because these patients can crash very quickly. Yesterday, I was on call for telemedicine, and I had three patients crash within five minutes of each other. At the same time, in another hospital, there were three patients who had cardiac arrest, one after one. There's often not time to honor his patients' dying requests. Dr. Barucha remembers an older woman who hadn't seen her estranged son in decades. She finally called him but the son couldn't visit his mother because of pandemic protocols. This lady could not have the son at the bedside and she treated me as a son and wanted me to hold her hands when she dies. And I could not live up to that. Right at the end, Dr. Barucha was called away to treat someone else. Somewhere in the back of my mind, it is haunting me. And I do not know how long it will haunt me. Yeah. Currently, his hospital hasn't had to turn anyone away, but he says that could change overnight. Dr. Barucha says, please stay home. Stop spreading the virus. That's what could help right now. That was KQED science reporter Leslie McClurg. 
As end-of-semester grades and test scores start to roll in, it's becoming clear that the pandemic is taking a serious toll on student performance. KPBS education reporter Joe Hong explains what educators in San Diego County are doing to address the higher rates of failing grades this year. Um, For my classes right now, the grades are, they're not wonderful. (laughs) They don't look great. In normal years, Damien Patterson says he has about five or six students with D's and F's. But this year, among his 37 students at Grossmont High School in El Cajon, 12 students have F's. He said learning from home has come with obvious challenges. It's hard to focus when you're surrounded by, you know, you're in your bedroom, it's comfortable, you have your bed there, your TV, your PlayStation or whatever, (laughs) your phone. But he says that's only a part of the problem. Some of his students have shouldered burdens beyond their schoolwork since the pandemic hit. Um, Some of them have jobs that they're working. Um, They are taking care of siblings while their parents are working or going to school. These issues are not unique to Grossmont High or even San Diego County. Schools across the country have reported more D's and F's since COVID-19 shut down schools. It's yet another stark reminder of how hard it's been for educators to hold students accountable while being sensitive to their needs during distance learning. Teresa Kemper is the superintendent of the Grossmont Union High School District. When schools first closed in the spring, the district adopted a no-harm grading policy, and she said some students just stopped trying. We did want to provide more accountability. So coming into this school year, we said grades are on. You know, you're starting the year fresh this way, so everything matters, everything counts in the classroom. But when the district saw the uptick in failing grades, principals and counselors ramped up outreach efforts and started a credit recovery program through which students can make up missed work. What units or what assignments did students miss that quarter that maybe uh, after school, before school, in winter session, in uh, December, January, they can work with teachers to make up to go back and fix that grade. At Poway Unified School District, about 7% of all grades are Fs this year, which is nearly twice the percentages last year. David Lamaster is the Executive Director of Learning Support Services at the district. He says the most effective remedy has been bringing students back to campus, even if it's just for one or two days a week. When we see a student who's struggling, the principal counselor will reach out and offer them the ability to come in and learn virtually on campus. And that has really helped uh, to re-engage um, the student into, into the learning. Lemaster said he's not too worried about long-term consequences. He's confident that teachers and counselors will be able to keep students on the right path. I think we're early enough in the year where we can catch those those students and still get them back on track and ready to go so that it doesn't affect uh, the numbers of kids gra- graduating and or getting into the colleges that they want to get into. Back in Grossmont, Patterson says this year has proven that there is no real substitute for an in-person classroom. Students just tend to do better in the environment inside of a classroom where they're in front of a teacher and they're kind of held accountable and, you know, um, they have teachers and different ones to check in on them and make sure that they're on task and things like that. Joe Hong, KPBS News. KPBS On Demand is supported by Bill Howe Plumbing, Heating and Air, Restoration and Flood Services. Family owned and operated for three generations, Bill Howe has been serving the plumbing, heating and air and water damage needs of the San Diego area since 1980. With their fleet of trained professionals, Bill Howe has the ability to service all major and minor plumbing and HVAC emergency needs 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. 
Bill Howe is committed to providing excellent service to their customers with transparent quotes and attention to detail on every job. Whether you're in need of an HVAC installation, plumbing, or water damage restoration in San Diego, they offer the convenience of scheduling an appointment over the phone, online, or through live chat on their website. Call 1-800-BILL-HOWE or visit billhowe.com because we know how. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Kavanaugh with Mark Sauer. The Department of Homeland Security has officially announced it's once again allowing first-time applicants to apply for DACA. Late last week, a federal judge ordered DHS to suspend its limitations on the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program because the court said the acting DHS chief had no authority to limit the program. The ruling comes after a dizzying, years-long tug-of-war between the courts and the Trump administration's efforts to eliminate DACA. The court ruling restores the program just weeks before Joe Biden, who promised to uphold DACA, takes office as president of the United States. Joining me is Dulce Garcia, a San Diego immigration attorney and DACA recipient. Dulce, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Maureen. What does this ruling do for DACA recipients? What limitations does it take off the program? It restores the program as it was before Trump attempted to take it away on September 5th, 2017. So it essentially reverts the program back to how it was announced in 2012, where new applications are now being processed and Advanced Pro is back. Uh, without the limitations. Uh, so the most recent memo from DHS restricted our ability to travel abroad only to some circumstances that an officer would find extraordinary uh, and a necessity to leave the country for a humanitarian reason. Now, advanced parole restored, and we can travel for educational purposes as well as for work purposes, which is a huge deal for those of us that have been uh, experiencing death across the border without the ability to see our families. So more than 300,000 DACA applications are going to now be processed uh, that were uh, waiting in the last three years to process. So this is actually huge news for the program to not only stay in place, but be reverted back to how it was uh, being implemented before Trump is huge. And it extends DACA authorization back to two years. You don't have to keep applying every year as you as you were required to just recently. Is that right? Yes, it's going to be an automatic extension of the one-year permits that were issued uh, since July 28 because of the latest memo from the Wolf administration. Uh, those permits should be extended automatically, and DHS is supposed to provide a notice to every single person that received one of these permits. Um, and the website was updated yesterday. We're pending to see uh, whether they actually did file this notice uh, as they were instructed to by the court. But that's another big one. You know, as we're going through a pandemic, DHS decided to cut down our permits from two years to one. And that means that we would have to pay the $495 filing fee yearly. So thanks to the efforts from this lawsuit, we revert back to the two-year work permit. Doesn't this ruling follow a U.S. Supreme Court order earlier this year that wasn't followed by the Department of Homeland Security? Yes, that has been the most frustrating part that we won our case at the Supreme Court. We, we have been winning at every state. We, we, we won at the lower court level, at the appellate court level, and at the Supreme Court level. We have been winning against the Trump administration. And instead of this administration uh, just letting DACA stand as it is, 
they have taken upon themselves to continue to dismantle it. And exactly a month later, DHS, uh, under the acting secretary, Wolf, decided to dismantle again the program. And here we are where we're winning again yet another court battle. Um, And it's still not over because the state of Texas is still continuing its efforts to end the program. So that's why it's been such a difficult last few years, because although we keep having our wins in court, uh, we still see the administration continually trying to dismantle the program, even after our win at the Supreme Court. What are some of the real life effects of this ruling restoring DACA? What does it mean? Well, what does it mean to you? It's definitely a day to celebrate because so many people have suffered so much by not knowing what their next steps would be after high school, for example. So we had over 100,000 high school students graduate without the certainty of insecurity of a job because they don't have a work permit or to know that they could be deported at any, any moment. This provides a little bit of peace mind. Uh, to know that at least for the time being, they're not deportable. And and that means everything. Um, these folks that are graduated from high school can know that they're going to be here uh, lawfully working and being able to pay for their studies. It means everything to have a work permit and be able to provide for your family. This whole process the last few years highlights the, the need to have this be a permanent thing. To, to have permanent security, to provide a path to citizenship so that all of these issues are not are resolved permanently so that we don't have to constantly worry about how we're going to provide for our families. And with Joe Biden taking office, are you hopeful that there may be a more permanent resolution for the dreamers, people brought to this country as children and even for em- immigration policy in general? Um, everything everything d- depends on what will happen in the Georgia runoff elections this coming January. So it's important still for us to keep mobilizing and get the vote out in Georgia. So it, there's still anxiety. There's still uncertainty. Uh, we'll see what's going to happen on the Texas hearing uh, December 22nd. But as I mentioned, really, in order for us to have peace of mind, what we need is a path to citizenship. Uh, that was not going to happen with the current president. But as Biden comes into office, we expect that uh, Biden will be an ally for us and DACA will be continue at the minimum with the hopes of having a path to citizenship. I've been speaking with Dulce Garcia. She's a San Diego immigration attorney and DACA recipient. Dulce, thank you so much. Thank you again. As the legal battle to reinstate DACA raged on in the courts over the last three years, current and potential DACA recipients were left in limbo. KPBS reporter Tanya Thorne talked with two DACA recipients about their experiences. I kind of did know that I was undocumented, but I kind of didn't know what that meant. Luna Azul Chacon arrived in the U.S. from Mexico with her parents and younger brother when she was only five years old. When she turned 15, she was eligible to apply for DACA, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. And that process was really intense. I know that for me, I literally just wanted to give up because I was like, is it even worth it? Uh, Luna has been documented for four years. Approximately 750,000 DACA recipients in the U.S. have gone through journeys similar to Luna's. She is now a first-generation college student studying to become a pediatrician or OBGYN. When the pandemic hit, Luna needed to help support her family financially until she contracted COVID-19. I wanted to have as minimal contact with them because I know they had jobs. So if 
they got sick, then we would even be in a worse situation. Despite living under the same roof, Luna was the only one in her family to get sick. Forced to take time off work to recover, Luna still needed to navigate the ever-changing DACA renewal and pay the $495 filing fee. Kevin Tracy is a San Diego attorney who handles DACA cases. He says President Trump terminated DACA in 2017 to force Congress to take action. Congress is the body that enacts immigration legislation. Although it was implemented in 2012, for 18 years before that, you had the DREAM Act. And the DREAM Act had been in Congress for over 18 years and they could never agree as to how to implement it. New DACA applications haven't been taken since the Trump administration suspended the program in 2017. Marian Mata Garcia is another dreamer who came to the U.S. from Mexico in 2001 when she was one and a half years old. When she turned 15, her parents helped her apply for DACA, granting her a driver's license and work authorization. Like, I was never discouraged because of my status if I just saw something that was like oh like permanent residence and U.S. citizen I'm like okay well I won't apply to that and then I just kept looking for um other resources. Her perseverance to look for opportunities led her to transfer from community college to UCSD where she is studying global health and biology. Marion says her personal experience with DACA helped her look at the pandemic from a different point of view. Because I live in uncertainty every single day like that's my life so for me I was like oh okay well the government's gonna control whatever and then we're just gonna do it you know and like because that's been my life you know like the government's like okay well now that guy is only one year and i was like okay well now it's one year while the trump administration continues its legal fight over daca both luna and marion have high hopes for president-elect biden who has pledged to reinstate the program after taking office i do have high hopes for um, this new administration and yeah i mean all we can do is really wait hold on like go out um, and then show them that we're here and that we're here to stay. This story was produced with support from the Economic Hardship Reporting Project. Joining me now is KPBS North County reporter Tanya Thorne. Tanya, welcome. Thanks for having me, Maureen. Luna quarantined successfully when she got COVID. None of her family got sick. But if they had, hasn't California tried to calm the fears of undocumented people who might get sick? Yeah, you know, we've seen a lot of outbreaks within the Latino communities, and there has been an array of resources available to the undocumented community if they happen to get COVID. You know, there's been resources like food, hotels to quarantine in, some financial support. But what I got from Luna is that this help ultimately isn't enough to cover rent and other expenses for many households. And that was their biggest worry. The attorney in your report says the Trump administration tried to terminate DACA to force Congress to act. Quite a few people might disagree that was the president's motive, but even if it's true, it hasn't really worked, has it? It really hasn't. I mean, from what the attorney said is that the DREAM Act sat in Congress's hands for 18 years before Obama came into office and passed the executive order for DACA. What I think the holdup really is, is whether or not DACA will grant a path to citizenship or residency. Will DACA recipients then be allowed to petition for their families who entered the country illegally? I mean, if this is an opportunity they get, it would ultimately defeat the system that's already in place for many applicants who have applied for citizenship the correct way.
What are Luna and Marion Mata hoping changes in the new Biden administration? Do they want to see DACA renewed or immigration reform that provides a pathway to citizenship? You know, both Luna and Marion are students trying to get into the medical field to help their communities. And I think that access to that opportunity is what they want, whether it's through a DACA renewal or an immigration reform. Of course, both of them hope that citizenship would also mean giving their parents a chance to get ahead for their sacrifice in getting them here. I mean, they were able to go to school and get ahead thanks to them coming here, whether it was illegally. And, you know, Biden has stated that one of the first things he will do is reinstate DACA upon taking office. So both of them are very hopeful. And, you know, to a larger issue, it sounds like while living through this pandemic, we could all learn from these DACA recipients how to live with uncertainty. Tell us more about how these young women, how they stay focused on their dreams despite the confusion surrounding them. You know, Marion couldn't have said it better. While the entire world is scrambling, wondering when restaurants will open, when graduations will take place again, when life will go back to normal, they don't have a normal. Most of their life and what they're able to do has been determined by the government through DACA. Although we are all limited in one way or another now due to the pandemic, there is hope for the future. Tanya, was there anything that surprised you about doing this report? Were you startled by the attitude uh, that Luna and Marion Mata have about this situation? You know, well, Luna is a first-generation college student, and she mentioned having to navigate the education system all by herself because she was the first person in her family to go to elementary school, middle school, high school, and now college. And You know, her parents didn't really have a background on what to do with school. So ultimately, she had to guide herself into even the DACA application. And Marion, you know, her attitude is just great. I mean, even though she is very limited because of her status and she was granted DACA, I could tell that she just looked on the bright side of things. I mean, she said when she was applying for scholarships and universities and college, if If some of the requirements, you know, disqualified her, she would just go look for another opportunity. She opened up clubs and just reached out to counselors. And her attitude was just very positive throughout her entire situation. And even until now and looking forward into the future past the pandemic. Okay, then that's why they call them dreamers. I've been joined by KPBS North County reporter Tanya Thorne. Tanya, thank you. Thank you, Maureen. After a major federal court ruling last week, the Department of Homeland Security has now been ordered to start once again accepting new DACA applications. A little-known board within the San Diego County Sheriff's Department has come under scrutiny in federal court. The Critical Incident Review Board, or CURB, looks at deputies' use of force, notably in cases resulting in deaths. One such in-custody death of a man suffering from schizophrenia prompted the federal lawsuit in which the secrecy of curb investigations is under attack. Voice of San Diego reporter Ashley McGlone investigated Curb's role in this case, and she joins me now. Ashley, welcome to the program. Thank you. We'll start with the Critical Incident Review Board. What is CURB's role? Who's on the board? What does it do? It's comprised of five uh, people. Four of them are high-ranking commanders, one from each bureau within the department. And then there's also the Sheriff's Department's Chief Legal Counsel, who's a non-voting member. Um, And what they do, what they list in their policy as their top priority is to discuss anticipated litigation following 
use of force incidents, things like, you know, force that results in great bodily injury or death or officer involved shootings. Um, but they also do other things. They take a look at um, investigations when there is a death, for instance, um, and decide whether those officers violate with it, whether they believe the officers violated policy or procedures and deserve actual possible discipline at the hands of internal affairs. So they get to decide whether those cases go to internal affairs often. And then they also sometimes can make broader recommendations for changes to policy or procedures based on specific incidents. And uh, this CURB board is completely separate from the Citizens Law Enforcement Review Board, right? Correct. Yeah, this is an entirely internal board. Um, The Citizens Review Board is external and doesn't actually have any power over the Sheriff's Department's decision making. This body internal has actually quite a lot of power. um, And that's one of the values that the undersheriff told me it has is that these are high ranking commanders and they have the power to make changes that they see are needed following use of force incidents. And tell us briefly about the case of Paul Silva, whose mother called police for help during an emergency. What happened? Yeah, so in February 2018, uh, Paul Silva's mother called uh, San Diego police for assistance with her son's um, psychological breakdown. He he was known to have suffered from schizophrenia. She told him that. Um, but instead, they dispatched uh, police, not their psychological sort of specialty unit, but uh, normal patrol officers who responded to the scene and did a sobriety test and suspected he was under the influence of a controlled substance. So rather than take him to sort of a mental health facility, they booked him in the downtown Central County Jail um, and where he remained there for 36 hours without medical treatment. Urine tests would show that he was not under the influence of any controlled substances. He was just having a psychological breakdown, um, but then things escalated into an altercation with officers uh, who were trying to extract him from the jail, again, 36 hours later, and, and it resulted in him falling unconscious and then dying in a coma a month later. Now, this case was ruled a homicide. That's, of course, a death at the hands of others, but no deputy or other person involved was charged with the crime. What role did the Critical Incident Review Board play in this case? Right. So after the death, they received the initial internal homicide investigative report and any evidence that was available. Like there is video footage of this altercation that took place in his jail cell. They reviewed it and they made the decision to not refer the case to internal affairs, which, again, that would be the body that could possibly mete out any kind of discipline for the officers involved. To our knowledge, no other changes were made. But again, the actual report itself and the actual outcome beyond the decision to not send it to internal affairs remains under wraps for now. And now Paul Silva's family has filed suit in federal court. What's their attorney requesting regarding the secret operation of CURB? Right. So they actually are asking for three years worth of CURB reports. They believe that there's been an environment fostered by CURB and other uh, internal mechanisms at the Sheriff's Department that are supposed to be there for accountability for officers that have instead failed in their mission and have perpetuated an environment where officers can act and kill with impunity. They point to a long list of in-custody deaths and and stats that show that San Diego County's in-jail custody death uh, rates are Uh, exceed other large county jail systems. And so they want to see, okay, well, if this body exists to hold officers accountable, how often do they send these officers onward to disciplinary hearings? And how often do they sort of give them a pass? Uh, So that's what they're seeking at this time. And what is the response from leaders at the San Diego County Sheriff's Department? They say these these reports and these the activities specific to this board need to stay confidential. And not only is 
you know, the role of the attorney inextricably linked with all of their activities. It actually is for the public good. Um, Under Sheriff Michael Barnett tells me it would be a disservice to make those reports public. Um, They say that the quality of the review that's done uh, would would worsen if they knew that those reports would be made public. When these meetings are held after a use of force incident, like an in-custody death, they want the unvarnished truth. They want people to be able to talk candidly about what happened without fear of it getting leaked or released to the media or any other person. And you interviewed an attorney who represents families filing wrongful death suits against the sheriff's department as well as the ACLU. What do they say about sheriff's officials insisting that the workings of CURB remain secret? They believe that the presence of the attorney on the board is essentially a smokescreen, that much of its activities, the decisions to send the case to IA or not, um, broader recommendations about policy or training changes, those can all be done without an attorney. And so there is a place for an attorney to consult them for anticipated litigation, but these reviews happen with or without litigation. And these sorts of fact-finding discussions could also occur without an attorney present. So to then have an attorney on the board and throw up the attorney-client privilege over all of its activities, they, they feel that that's just disingenuous and a ruse. And the federal magistrate handling this issue and the Silva family's lawsuit, what's uh, he said about secrecy surrounding the critical incident review board? Yeah, at this point, so the county, again, was fighting to really release nothing uh, to this family through the discovery process in federal court about its curb activities beyond what sort of the manual says it does. Um, And the judge said, you know, no, what cases go to curb um, that in and of itself is not automatically confidential because an attorney is on this board. Uh, so he has ordered, he has disagreed and, and rejected their attorney-client privilege claim over everything related to CURB. And at this point, he has said, you will produce a factual list of uh, you know short summaries of each case that has gone to per, uh, CURB over this three-year time frame, And sort of, he'll take up any further discovery disputes potentially later this month. And he's not totally convinced or even uh, fully understanding at this point why the county has the curb set up exactly the way it does and what the role of the attorney is at every step of the way in their proceedings. What's the timetable here? When might the Silva suit and this uh, secrecy issue be resolved? Right. So the, the judge handling the discovery dispute in this case said that he will take up lingering concerns as early as this month. Um, so he maybe would decide something this month or maybe early next year. Um, an actual trial date will, is not expected to be set until much later, maybe November of next year. Um, and then the trial itself, maybe not till 2022. Um, but efforts to get this case dismissed outright by both the county and actually the city of San Diego, which is also being sued as a defendant since they were the police that made the arrest, um, and and a medical group uh, that had provided nurses to the jails, uh, those efforts have been shot down. And so this case is proceeding as we speak. Well, we'll see what happens with the follow-up on all of this. I've been speaking with reporter Ashley McGlone of Voice of San Diego. Thanks very much. Thank you. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. I'm Mark Sauer with Maureen Cavanaugh, and you're listening to Midday Edition on KPBS. Dial back a half century or more in San Diego. It's astonishing to see how different things were. UC San Diego and the Salk Institute were in their infancies. San Diego State was a college, not yet a university. 
The Padres didn't join the major leagues till 1969 when they had a brand new stadium a few miles east of the brand new sports arena. These milestones and much more are included in San Diego Memories, A Time of Change, the 1960s and 1970s. It's by longtime San Diego journalist Roger Scholey, and he joins me now. Roger, good to have you back on the program. Glad to be with you, Mark. Well, let's start with the 1960s. Hard for people our age to realize that is 60 years ago. But what about San Diego? <clears throat> what was it like at the start of that tumultuous decade? How big was the city? Who lived here? Well, it wasn't yet one of the top 10 cities in America. Uh, it was still growing. It, growth was a big thing. So in those days, San Diego was trying to diversify its economy. And you mentioned UCSD and Salk Institute and San Diego State, all part of the drive to become a high-tech research and development center of America. Right. I want to ask you about that. The 60s were a great uh, time of change culturally and, of course, great tragedy on a national level with the riots and the assassinations, the Vietnam War. How did San Diego figure into all of that? Well, we were not uh, immune to uh, all kinds of uh, movements going on in those days. There, there was a protest demonstration in front of the uh, El Cortez Hotel because of uh, a uh, battle over fair housing laws in California. We had the same issues in San Diego over discrimination and uh, inclusion. Um, women were beginning to become more and more uh, prominent in San Diego affairs, not only getting elected to office, but there were scientists, uh, researchers, women, standouts in every field of San Diego life. Now, what were some of the major accomplishments here in the 1960s? I did mention the, uh, the a couple of new stadiums and pro sports came to town. Well, let's see. You mentioned the universities. I think that's probably the most important thing in the 1960s and 70s. San Diego became a, a national uh, a major league sports city with the Chargers coming in 1961. And you mentioned the uh, Padres becoming a major league uh, team at the end of the decade. We also, going to the 70s, were trying to become a, a, a major league basketball team center, which didn't work very well. Right. Uh, but at one point, we had three <laughs> major league teams here in, in the period you're writing about. Yeah. So I was uh, surprised how uh, sports came and went. It was always a major. Uh, come on for big cities. You know, you can't be a major league city without the major league teams. Now, before we move to the 70s, tell us something about the 60s here that younger people or those of us who moved here from elsewhere might not know about San Diego in the 60s. Well, I think the Vietnam War uh, movement or anti-war movement was very strong in San Diego, particularly UCSD. I was a student at the campus the second half of the 60s, and I experienced that firsthand. All the pictures I have included this book, I remember personally witnessing as a student at the time. Well, let's move on to the 1970s. Off the top of my head, it was the time of Mayor Pete Wilson, the moderate Republican establishment, fully in charge, right? Exactly. He was uh, actually probably the most important and influential mayor in San Diego history for on a number of levels. He was the one who uh, introduced growth management uh, rules in San Diego, trying to make growth pay for itself. And he was uh, a leader we still remember as uh, returning around downtown. In the 70s, he made redevelopment number one priority. And out of that came Horton Plaza Shopping Center, the Convention Center, the trolley, downtown offices, office towers, and housing. So B. Wilson was very popular in, in his day. He was re-elected three times. 
So a lot of those uh, accomplishments and the foundations for things that we saw later, as you mentioned, Horton Plaza and uh, some of the rest, uh, were, were done by Pete Wilson at that time. There was a big push back then and still is now, as you note, uh, for uh, an airport that never quite came to be a new airport here, right? <laughs> no, that was uh, in the previous book I did, which was on the 40s and 50s. Uh, it goes back that the whole, far. The whole question of uh, Miramar... They had the approval, and uh, they were going to take over Miramar Naval Air Station. And some people said, oh, that's too far away. We'll never need to go that far for an airport. So, And ever since then, as you know, we've been discussing what to do with Lindbergh. And this, this decade, these two decades, it was culminated in the worst plane crash in American history at the time, the PSA crash in 1978. And we, a lot of people thought, gee, that if, if we don't move the airport because of that, terrible crash, we will never move it. And that's turned out to be the case. It sure has. Well, again, the same question about the 70s. Tell us something about the 70s in San Diego that many people might not know. As I mentioned, the plane, the plane crash, the other two big events in 1978 were the, uh, was the arson fire that destroyed the Gold Globe Theater and the electric building in Balboa Park. Uh, we had a terrible school shooting by Brenda Spencer in 1979. But then the, on, the, on the plus side, we had all the usual uh, rock stars. Most prominent in the 60s was the Beatles, but we had the Bee Gees in the 70s, you know, where Elvis Presley came here five times in the, in the 30-year period. San Diego was Richard Nixon's so-called lucky town, lucky city. He, Whenever he was running for office, San Diego voted in great... Uh, uh, celebration of Richard Nixon's political career. He had the Western White House just outside the Calif County borders up the road. Uh, this period was when the San Onofre power plant was built. And here we are about to demolish that. And then one other thing in the 70s we shouldn't forget is that Comic-Con started in 1970 at the U.S. Grand Hotel. There were only 300 people that went to the first one. And now when there's not a pandemic, Comic-Con draws more than 100,000 people. Right, and uh, I didn't realize at all that it went back uh, way that far. Well, finally, tell us about this series of books on San Diego history. What's the overall concept? And I should note that you're a natural for this, having written about the city and region for more than 40 years with the Union Tribune and, and with the roots your family has here. Yeah, thank you. I, when I, the, day, the day, the week I was leaving the UT in 2018, after that many years, uh, Jeff Light, the editor, said, oh, I have a project for you. And so he told me about this company named Pediment that, partners with newspapers around the country to do historical picture books. So they said, I said, sure, I'd be love to do that. And they, uh, they have a formula where they have a, a newspaper usually partner with a history, a historical society, in this case, San Diego History Center. Most of the pictures are come from the Union Tribune's um, photographer work uh, that are housed at the History Center. Well, so many photos and so many stories. Uh, where can our listeners get these books? Well, they're available from the History Center. You can go to the Pediment Publishing Company. And I'll note that we will have those links on our website, too. Go to kpbs.org, and the information on how to get these books will, will be there as well. I've been speaking with San Diego journalist and author Roger Scholey. His latest book is San Diego Memories, A Time of Change, the 1960s and 1970s. Thanks, Roger. Thank you, Mark. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, 
healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu.